0: Father God, we come to you today grateful for um, your word, and we pray, Father, that as we look into your word this morning, that we would not just see what happened thousands of years ago um, in Israel and Egypt, but God, that we would see you coming off the page, that we would see Christ coming through clearly. Father, I pray that you would fill me with your spirit, that you would uh, enable me to speak this word faithfully, and God, that we would receive this word, that you would open our eyes, ears, and hearts to do what it says. Father, we ask these things and ask that the words of our mouth and the meditation of our heart would be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as you've already heard from Kai, um, we have five more Sundays left in this building. In five Sundays we will be moving and we still don't know where to. So if you're joining us for the first time today or just visiting or brand new to our church, thanks for being here. We promise we'll tell you where we're gonna go. (laughs) All the info will be on our website and, and if we get contact info from you, we'll reach out to you as well. Um, but I say all of that not because I want to make you feel unstable or uncertain about the future. I say that because I know that God is at work through this time in our church. I don't know why God is doing what He's doing, but I know that He is in control, and I know that He's good. And I think at least an aspect of this season that God's using in our church is to to teach us to learn uh, about his redemption. He he wants us to see his redemption clearly for what it is. We're going through a series right now called Into the Wilderness, looking ahead into the wilderness for our church by looking back at what God did in Israel um, all those years ago in Egypt. And this morning we're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 14, which Song read earlier. I'm looking at God's redemption of his people, Israel. And the crazy thing about this this passage is that that God's redemption of Israel didn't lead Israel immediately into the promised land. Israel, up until this point, had been enslaved by the Egyptians. They were a people that were um, kind of captured, captive, um, didn't have determination over themselves and their future and their work. And God is redeeming, saving his people out of, out of slavery. That's what redemption means, buying someone's freedom out of slavery. God's redeeming his people, but he doesn't bring them immediately into the, the, the land that he promised them. He doesn't bring them into a, a kind of a, a golden, lovely land that, that they can have as their own. No, he redeems them into the wilderness. He redeems them into the wilderness. And, and what I think God wants to show us through this passage this morning as we look into his redemption is that, our, that God's redemption for us does two things. It, it, first of all, reveals our irrepressible need. And secondly, God's redemption reveals his unwavering love. That God's redemption for us reveals our irrepressible need and his unwavering love unwavering love first of all let's look at our irrepressible need that's revealed in this passage if you are familiar with Aesop's fables then you might be familiar with the, the, the tale of the fox and the grapes and in this story Aesop tells it, there's, there's a fox and there's a bunch of grapes and the fox jumps up to try to get the grapes grapes look good, they look delicious fox wants to try some, jumps and tries to get them and she can't Jumps again, maybe grazes the grapes with her nose, but can't quite grab them. Jumps again a third time, but but still can't get get a hold of them. And so after trying and trying and failing to get a hold of the grapes, the fox says, I don't need those grapes. Those grapes are sour. I I didn't didn't want them in the first place. And if you've ever heard the term sour grapes, that's where the, the term comes from. The fox tells herself that the grapes were sour, even though she was trying to get them, and failed. It's a a tale about our tendency as human beings to deceive ourselves. We all have a proclivity to self-deception. Whether it's because um, we, we want to avoid looking at our own failure, or we want to avoid dealing with the negative emotions we might be experiencing at a point in time, all of us deceive ourselves in one way or another. And scientists look into, you know, the, the, that, that human tendency and want to try and explain why. Some scientists believe, in fact, um, that we lie to ourselves in order to get better at lying to others. And so if, if you can imagine, you know, kind of a used car salesman who's, who's selling lemons, he's probably lied to himself so much that he can't see his face for what it really is. We all lie to ourselves, according to some scientists, in order to lie well to others. I read a New York Times article recently about a woman who was dealing with the death of her father and and her her dad throughout his life was was a drunk and and as she was um, kind of cleaning out his house she found empty liquor bottles everywhere behind the desk under the couch behind the bed everywhere she looked in the house as she was cleaning it out after her father's death there were empty liquor bottles and and throughout her growing up her, her mom had always explained away her dad's drinking. You know, Where's daddy? Well, mom wouldn't say that he's drunk. She would say that dad's taking a nap. After a fight, after you know, dad is, is abusive verbally towards mom, uh, mom comes out to explain to the girls that dad's just in a mood. He's just in a mood, always covering up for dad. And then after her father's death, this woman goes and confronts her mother and says, dad was a drunk. Admit it. You know this is true. And rather than coming face-to-face with reality, her mother still, after her dad's death, her mother still flat-out denied it. All of us have a tendency to deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves in some way, whether it's the way that we look in the mirror, whether it's the health and quality of our relationships, whether it's the the consequences of an action we want to take, whether it's about our future, our plans. We all have a tendency to deceive ourselves. And Israel, at this moment, in Exodus chapter 14, was definitely in the midst of self-deception. Israel were, were deceiving themselves. Le- read again verses 11 and 12 with me. They're standing on the edge of the Red Sea, looking at the army of Pharaoh behind them, and, e- and Israel says this to Moses. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to bring us, or to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Israel in that moment is afraid. They're afraid of what might happen. The the, the sea is ahead of them. The army is behind them. And they're wavering. Their faith in God and in His deliverance for them is wavering. They've been lying to themselves. Death is on either side, both ahead and behind. And what comes out is, is lies about who they are and who God is. The first that lie they believe is that life was better in Egypt. But they forget that Pharaoh made them build bricks without straw, a task that was nearly impossible. They, they forgot what it was like to be a slave, the, the constant abuse, the ridicule, the beatings. They forgot. That a generation before, uh, Pharaoh had ordered the the, the murder of all the baby boys in Israel. That the baby boys born to the Israelite women were to be thrown into the Nile River and drowned. They believed life was better in Egypt because they were lying to themselves. They were self-deceived. They were telling themselves in that moment, The promised land, the land that God had promised to us, sour grapes. We don't need that let's just go back to egypt they looked ahead at themselves and said dad's not a drunk dad's just napping the second lie they believed was that moses was the one who had brought them there but moses wasn't the one that, that led israel out of egypt yes he was physically present yes he was the leader god had chosen but moses was just a spokesman moses was just the messenger But Moses wasn't the one that in, in sending plagues on Egypt had turned the Nile into blood. Moses wasn't the one who had sent gnats or frogs or locusts to devour the crops of the Egyptians. Moses couldn't possibly have darkened the sun in the middle of the day and left Egypt in total pitch black darkness. Israel was looking at Moses as the one that brought them there. But Moses was not the angel of death. Moses did not lead Israel out of Egypt through the Passover. It was God who did that. He didn't deliver Israel by the blood of the Lamb. It was God who did that. Moses hadn't taken the firstborn of all the Egyptians. It was God sending his angel who did that. Israel, on on the edge of the Red Sea, is in the midst of lying to themselves. They're deceived. They're telling themselves like maybe some of us do. Oh, it's the political party on the other side of the aisle, whatever side of the aisle that is. It's all of their fault. Everything wrong in my life or in this country, it's them. They're deceiving themselves. I can't help but eat as much as I do. I can't help but drink as much as I do. I can't help but numb the pain that I feel inside. The third lie that Israel was believing As they stood on the edge of the Red Sea was that somehow Pharaoh's army and the sea before them were more powerful than the God who had delivered them they believed that Pharaoh and the sea were more powerful than God because after all I mean in that moment you can see the sea you can see the waters ahead of you and you can look behind you and see this massive army the most powerful army in the world at the time I can see these things. I can't see God. I can't see how God is going to save me. I can't see how God is going to deliver me and take me out of my predicament. After all, if I can't explain my situation, God must not be there. If I have to suffer in my situation, God must not care about me. Have you ever been there? Have you ever felt abandoned by God? Have you ever felt uncertain about your future and feel as though God must not be there or must not care about you in that moment? I can't tell you how many times I've felt that way. Like, I've felt abandoned by God. I felt abandoned by God in the midst of doing ministry. Like, I have to keep going, I have to keep going, and where is God, and where is God? I've been there. Have you? Do you have a tendency to believe that God isn't there for you, that he doesn't care about you? Why is it that God has you in whatever that situation is, whatever that circumstance is, it makes you question his goodness? I don't know what it is for you. I don't know whatever it is that you are going through. But I know that for me, sometimes God takes me through those seasons of dryness, of darkness, of trial, to open my eyes to my irrepressible need for Him. I might try and push it down. I might try and deceive myself, but but this need for Him keeps bubbling up to the surface. Because my default setting is to be self-deceived. I tell myself that, that I'm able. I mean, I'm, I'm a self-made man. I'm capable, I'm smart, I'm intelligent. I deserve what I, the good things that I have. I don't deserve the bad things, but I do deserve the good things. I'm in control. And God brings me through times of, of challenge and trial to reveal those things for what they are, to reveal that those are lies. And it's part of God's redemption to show our irrepressible need for him. He doesn't want to reveal our need for him in order to make us wallow in the muck and the mire and the darkness. No, God reveals our need for him in order to demonstrate his grace in our lives. God wants to pour out his abundant, undeserved love upon us. And in order to do that, he has to open us up. He has to open us up to receive his love to receive his grace and mercy and that's why he's bringing israel through this time in exodus 14 israel is having this this crisis of faith they're believing what their eyes can tell them but they are not believing in god's love and care but what is faith what does the bible tell us faith is Hebrews chapter 11 verse 1 says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. To have faith is to not see the thing that you have faith in. That's the Bible's definition of faith. In the book of James, chapter 1 verses 2 through 4, James reminds us that we should count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith, that's what trials are for, it is to test our faith, that that testing produces steadfastness, perseverance, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. God wants to build up our faith through trial to perfect our faith, to make us perfect in Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, tell us why faith is so important. It says that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. All of those verses taken together tell us a few important things. First of all, as Christians, we believe fundamentally that we are saved by God's grace through faith in Christ. That that faith is fundamentally a trust that's placed in a God we cannot see. And that God builds us up, builds up our faith, strengthens our faith through trials, through difficulty, through areas of stretching and growth. That's why, as Christians, we believe that one of of the most important things we can do, spiritually speaking, is to realize our irrepressible need for God. That rather than letting ourselves walk in self-deception, telling ourselves we're okay or in control, one of the most important things we can do is look in the mirror and see honestly who we are, not just physically, but spiritually, in our deepest heart. And that, I think, is is part of the blessing of losing this building. I don't want to lose this building. I don't want to spend a lot of time during the week acting like a real estate agent. I'm not good at that. But I have no doubt about why God is doing this for us, at least in part that God is working in all of us right now to make us more dependent on Him. That God is working in us right now to perfect our faith, to teach us what it means not to depend on ourselves, as many of us who are educated and smart and capable and career-climbing people tend to do. We forget our dependence. We forget our need. And God is bringing us through this season to make it abundantly clear that we have nothing in our hands. That we can cling only to Christ by faith. That God is building our faith right now. And that He, and putting our faith in Christ and Christ alone, is more secure than any piece of real estate we could ever possess. So, what about you this morning? Do you see your irrepressible need for God? Are you willing to see it? It might not be obvious like Israel, Israel standing between an army and and a sea, certain death on both sides, but maybe it does reveal itself in certain ways that you haven't admitted to yourself yet. Maybe in those moments of of extreme anxiety, anxiety, You can interpret those as a medical condition. You could also let let yourself see them pointing to your need for God. Those times of darkness and depression reveal your deep need for, for solace and care from the God who made you and loves you. Your desire for meaning and purpose in this world is a desire for a God who alone can give it to you. Look, look at yourself. Look at your needs. Look at who you are before God and see, secondly, his unwavering grace, his unwavering love for you. Where we might waver on the edge of trial and tribulation, God's love never falters or fails. His love is unwavering. And we see that in verses 13 and 14. Verse 13 Moses said to the people, Fear not. Stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. God hasn't left them on the edge of the Red Sea. God has brought them to the Red Sea in order to show them his unwavering love for them. I mean, look at at how unstoppable God's love is. The, The sea itself could not stop it. Nature has no match for the grace of God. No matter what we face in the physical realm, God's love breaks through. Just takes one word for the sea to part and Israel to walk through on dry land. Human strength could not stop God's love for them. In verse 25, it says, the Egyptians, the the most powerful military in the world at the time, said, let us flee from before Israel, for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. This mighty army, this unstoppable force from the human perspective nothing to God. It reminds me of what it says in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 15 and 17. God says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. It doesn't even register on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. God was determined to redeem his people and no circumstances, no natural forces, no human might could stop him. God was determined to set his people free because he loved them, because he delighted in them. They were slaves, now they're free. And it's because Of God's unwavering love remember what what God said to Moses in the in the wilderness last week in in Exodus chapter 3 verses 7 and 8 the Lord said I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters I know their sufferings and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land a land flowing with milk and honey. In redemption, in God setting his people free, he showed them first their irrepressible need for him, and secondly, his unwavering love for them. And as a result, we have where this passage closes in verse 31. It says Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. They saw what God did for them, and they believed. They trusted him. They put their faith in God. Where does that leave us then? You know, one of the the iconic stories in the New Testament about what it means to have faith, comes in the book of John. You might have heard of doubting Thomas. Thomas was one of the disciples of Jesus. He was with Jesus and followed Jesus for his entire ministry on this earth. And Thomas was there at the crucifixion. He saw Jesus' hands pierced by the nails he saw the the roman soldier's spear go into his side he saw jesus die and be taken down from the cross and buried in a tomb and thomas like all the other disciples was heartbroken that their friends that their master was so brutally executed and in the book of john it tells the the account of the crucifixion, and then in, in chapter twenty, it tells of the resurrection. and And for whatever reason, in God's plan, when Jesus rose again and appeared to his disciples for the first time, Thomas wasn't there. And so Thomas was I don't know out buying groceries or something, taking a subway run to bring sandwiches back home. And he gets back home with his bag of sandwiches. And all the other guys look like they've seen a ghost, and they're amazed, and they're like, Thomas, we've seen the Lord. He's alive. He's here. It's okay. And Thomas, in John 20, verse 25, says to them, But unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Unless he sees it, he will not believe it. And maybe that's where you are today. Maybe you're in a place where, unless you see God show up in your life in some way, unless you have some vision or experience or or something really hits you, then you're not going to believe. Or you're not going to change the way that you live. Maybe, Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're a Thomas of sorts. As the story goes on, in in verse 27 of that passage, Jesus comes into the room, comes to Thomas, and says, here, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You and I, 2,000 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we don't get to see. We only get to hear. We don't have a vision of the risen Lord available to all of us. We get the testimony of the disciples in Scripture. We don't get to touch Jesus and and feel the place where the nails went into his hands. We get his word. And sometimes maybe we're tempted to think that that's lesser. But Jesus says, Blessed are we. We are blessed when we don't have the chance to see and yet believe. When we exercise true faith according to the New Testament, faith in a God we cannot see, faith in in events that took place 2,000 years ago, that Christ died for our sin as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the whole world, that He rose again on the third day, defeating death and hell forever. And that one day we hope that he will come again to judge the living and the dead and to bring all of his redeemed, all of his freed people finally home to the true promised land. Not a little strip of land near Jerusalem. No, but to the true promised land being the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth where God will be with us, where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. That's what we hope in. And if that's what you put your faith in, Jesus says himself that you are blessed today. And if you struggle for faith in that, if you struggle to believe that, then this word is for you. Because God has brought you here today to put on display to you his marvelous works, his unwavering love, not just for Israel 3,000 years ago, but for you today. Listen to what Paul writes about God's love for us in Romans chapter 5. It says, while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, while we wanted nothing to do with God, God sent his son, and Christ died for us. And because Christ has died and risen again, we can say with Paul in Romans 8.31 that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is now at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or Pharaoh's army, or the Red Sea before us, or whatever you face in your life? It's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, Nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Throughout their history, after this event, Israel would look back to the Red Sea as the moment when God delivered them, when God redeemed them. You and I don't have to look back to the Red Sea. We have something far greater to look back to. We have the cross and resurrection of the Son of God Himself. We have salvation in His name, by His grace, when we put our faith in Him. Immediately after this, Israel did not feel very saved. They'd been redeemed through the Red Sea. They sang a song, and the next chapter they're complaining. Why are we in the wilderness, God? Why are we brought here? What's going on? God redeemed them, but but he redeemed them into the wilderness. And there are times that we don't feel very saved either. Maybe you're tempted to not feel very saved in your life right now. I mean, a homeless church in five weeks doesn't exactly scream, you know, how saved we all are, the love of God, things like this. But our need for God is irrepressible, and God is using this season to teach us that, to teach us what salvation means for us. And through it, God's going to demonstrate His unwavering love, whatever that's going to end up looking like. I believe God's bringing all of us through this season to demonstrate not only our need, but His infinite desire to meet it. That God loves us with an unstoppable, unwavering love. His love has already come to us in Christ Jesus, and it's on that foundation that we can look to our trials and circumstances and say, I am loved, I have been redeemed, I do not need to worry or fear. I don't fear my circumstances. I fear my God and put my trust in Him. May we as a church body grow in faith. May we rest in the love of God for us in Christ. And may God point others to Christ through us as we grow in faith. That people in Alameda, people in the East Bay would see us, would see our love for God, our faith in Christ and God's love to us and see his great love for them as well. Let me pray for us. Father, we hear this word and I know some of us are tempted not to believe that it's for us. We see your salvation for Israel. We maybe believe in the salvation you gave us in Christ. But God, there are circumstances that impact us. There are things that confront us, Lord, that we are tempted to believe are bigger than you to believe are more pressing or important or difficult than you're capable or willing to care for us anymore. God, I pray for anyone here today who is overwhelmed by their circumstances, who feels defeated by their trials, <coughs> who feels forgotten by you, God. And Father, I pray that you would use this word this morning. That you, the Holy Spirit, would go to that person, to those people, and bring the comfort and peace of Christ to their hearts. When Jesus came to Thomas in John 20, the first thing he said was, Peace be with you. Father, please send the peace of Jesus upon us this morning some of us need it desperately and I pray God that as your peace comes to us as your presence comes to us by your spirit that you would build up our faith whatever trial we go through that we would learn to look back at what you have done in Christ and that on the foundation of that faith that we believe in what Jesus has done and because of, of the hope of what we, he will do at the end, that we will be able to walk through whatever wilderness we go through in confidence, in faithfulness, in humility, and in trust that you are our God and that you will never leave or forsake us. Thank you, God, for your love. Thank you for meeting us by your love, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Amen. At you know, this time, we're going to be uh, taking part of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and being able to take part of the Lord's Supper is it's only done by faith. It's uh, it's a sacrament that we come.